This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmurz Day, February 5th, 2024. On the show today, news and listener questions. Then in our main segment, Jim continues the story of illuminations. Let's get started by bringing in the man whose 2024 New Year's resolutions have just been nominated for the Man Booker Prize in short fiction. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Congratulations, Jim. How's it going? Oh, come on. We, we're actually recording this week's show on, on, on Thursday, February 1st. Okay. And it's right. a leap year. So I still have 333 days to, to pull off this year's resolution. And Len, if I really apply myself, I can become taller and blonder. Not to mention I'm mastering shot put juggling. I understand it's all on the wrist. I, you know, there's, there's still time. Come on. Plenty of time, plenty of time. We're only 8% of the way through the year. You've got plenty of time. Plenty of time. There we go. Okay. All right, Jim, let's do a quick shout out to our Patreon subscribers. Thanks to everyone who subscribes to the show over at patreon.com slash Media, including Lyle Henneke, Craig Groff Folsom, Paul from Worldwide, Tim Colleen, Mitchell Reed, and Dory Girly Girl. Jim, these are the Disney musicians now playing three sets a day in Frontierland during the Country Bear Jamboree refurb. They say that it's great to meet the guests and share a favorite song, and that their love of country, western, and mariachi music is the inspiration for their group name, Ariba McIntyre. True story. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, somebody's gotta use that name. That's a great name. And and you'll see in the show notes, I actually put the exclamation mark after Ariba. No, absolutely. Just for the marketing slogan. Okay. (laughs) By the way, I don't know if you saw earlier this week, uh, what, NBC announced that they're they're doing a pilot with her, another sitcom. I mean, Ms. McIntyre keeps charging along. (laughs) That's fantastic. Good for her. Mm -hmm. All right, Jim, let's do the news. Folks, the news is sponsored by touringplans.com. Touring plans helps you save time and money at theme parks like Walt Disney World. Check us out at touringplans.com. All right, Jim, I think the big news this week is that Universal Orlando has released its first major update of the year on Epic Universe. And Jim, I got to point out here that if you go back to the opening of Disneyland in 1955, Disney and Universal combined have opened eight new theme parks in the United States. So the opening of a new theme park like Epic Universe is a once in a decade event. It's a big deal, right? And then we should cover it. Okay. So Universal has got a new website uh, for Epic Universe, and they announced uh, five lands. You want to go over the names of those real quick, Jim? Certainly. After they go through the entry portal, uh, their equivalent of a, a Main Street is Celestial Park. And then I want to say if we start in our 11 o'clock position, we have uh, the Wizarding World of Harry Potter, which, uh, what, it, it's at Paris? Uh, of the uh, Fantastic Beast world, but the, the the central attraction is Ministry of Magic. I just watched the Harry Potter movies, and I understand the Ministry of Magic reference. 
it's the rest of it that I'm I'm kind of unclear about there. But we'll talk about that more. All right, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. And then continuing around the clock face here, uh, we have How to Train Your Dragon, uh, Isle of Burke, in, I want to say, our 8 o'clock position. Uh, we have Super Nintendo World. And then uh, at approximately our 10 o'clock position, we have Dark Universe, our celebration of the Universal Classic Monsters. And Universal is doing a slow roll of publicity for each of these lands. So they're basically talking about one land at a time in order to build up uh, uh, publicity for it. So the first one up was Celestial Park, the Main Street USA of Epic Universe. Their marketing text for this says, Step into a lush green world where thrills, entertainment, dining, and shopping lead all who enter on an exhilarating journey of discovery. Now, I don't know if you watched the video with uh, Mark Woodbury, the, the head of Universal Parks and Experiences, but there was one line out of this that particularly landed strong, that you know, to the effect of with this section of Epic Universal, they're going to put the park back in theme park, you know, the lush green world. And is that how you um is that how you you understood that comment? Because I wasn't I read the transcript of it, I wasn't sure where they were going with that, but that's what the he meant like Oh yeah. Nature. Yeah. Okay. Now a very, very much remember the catchphrase for this entire property is this changes everything. It's weird. I, I, I think there's another theme park in, in, in Orlando that recently leaned into the idea of a lush green center. I, I, I'm, I'm blanking the name, though. <laughs> all right. So Celestial Park is the central hub through which you'll enter all of the under, other lands. They did a really cool uh, fly-through video, interactive fly-through video of this land, which I, which I liked quite a bit. And they actually highlighted some of the attractions they're going to be in this land. Do you want to go through uh, those starting with Starfall Racers? Well, yeah. Now, this is their dual launch coaster. And the, the conceit here is that you, you share a race across the cosmos with Starfall Racers. And uh, I want to say that uh, at some point along the line, you're going to reach a speed of 62 miles an hour. Uh, it's a fairly lengthy experience. I mean, uh, they're quoting here, what is it? 5,000 feet of track uh, with you reaching a height of 133 feet. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, 5,000 feet is uh, is almost a mile. At 62 miles an hour, that's a minute of, uh, of a track. But, you know, there's uh, other launch stuff in there, and some of it will be slower. Some of it will be faster. Yeah. And then we have the Celestial Carousel. Uh, oh, sorry. Wait, sorry, Jim, real quick, before we go off on Starfall, Starfall Racers. Is it based on any IP? Well, no. Huh. And so, so my okay. So, question number two: When will the authorities, the theme park authorities, be arresting Universal for not <laughs> laying an IP on top of a new? You know, how does that? How does it work? Is that like the the UN comes in? I, who, I, who does you that? You know, I, I I have to admit that there will probably be an appeals procedure. <laughs> but on the other hand, when you you look at the the four other portals between How to Train Your Dragon, Harry Potter, Super Nintendo World, and of course the Universal Monsters, you know, then uh, they can make a compelling argument that hey, you know, we know we need a palate cleanser here, you know, so. <laughs> All right. Celestial Carousel, you were saying. Yeah, this is a very stylized coaster. In fact, what's kind of intriguing about it is that this is a coaster where, you know, that that all of the 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 creatures are are sort of hey off to the sides of the poles, you know, and as it was explained to me, this is this is 
again, a park that's designed with the understanding that not all people have the same abilities to enter vehicles and that sort of thing. So they're they're finding unique ways to kind of lean into the ADA stuff. I loved a couple of things about this uh, concept art. Number one was uh, it is a really pretty external shell. So it's not a, a an entire show building. It's, it's open air, right? But to me, it looked like, imagine if you could blend a Tiffany lampshade with Dr. Seuss characters on the inside. All right, you worked the Venn diagram. That 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 works for me. You know, I guess the one thing that does kind of concern me about Celestial Gardens is that this sort of of stylization, the very thing you mentioned about the mm-hmm. no IP, this is all new and unique. I have wonderful memories of the King Triton carousel at California Adventure. And, uh, you know, how wonderfully designed those figures were. And, you know, that, <laughs> that, that fell by the wayside really fast, Len. Yeah, the, the thing is, uh, this, this sort of uh, uh, building structure is not going to lend itself to be repurposed to, you know, the Incredibles or whatever. That's a very distinct style. You know what I mean? It is. It is. And so uh, that kind of limits what, uh, what Universal can do there, for good or for, and for bad, right? No, I agree. Okay. A couple of the things that um, that were mentioned in the flyer video were around restaurants. Like, one of them is called Atlantic. <laughs> yeah. I love the sort of uh, bullet point for, for this one. That's a full-service restaurant that serves steaks and seafood while mechanical fish whim above you. <laughs> Just so you know what you're getting into, both from a menu and from an ambiance perspective. <laughs> and, and I mean this in the kindest possible way, but but remembering those folks who, who would get extra oil on their salad when they went to Planet Hollywood in Orlando because they had hoisted <laughs> Herbie in place without emptying the crankcase. You know, I... I, I, I <laughs> I, I I want to be assured that the mechanical fish are you know gonna that they're, they're, they're properly sealed. I guess I think it would be great if if you ordered like caviar and then it uh, it was served <laughs> by having one of the fish drop it <laughs> on oh. your plate. I think oh. we still have time to workshop plenty of these ideas, Universal. In case you guys are interested, let me know. Okay, okay. And then um, the other really pretty exterior image that I thought Universal. Uh, released was the Blue Dragon Pan-Asian Restaurant, oh, also full yeah. service. Mm-hmm. Lots mm-hmm. of lanterns on the inside. What did you, uh, what did you take away from that? You have to remember that this is Universal that does has done the park in Beijing. And mm-hmm. this stylization is just lovely and cannot wait to see this thing all lit up at night. That entry gate literally through a, a dragon that's sort of curling in on itself. What a fun idea. Yeah, you get the you get the sense as you watched that fly through or the fly uh flyover video that with every exterior decision Universal was making, the question came up, how is this gonna look on Instagram? You know? <laughs> like like <laughs> I guarantee that's a laugh of recognition, Len. No, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, if that is the world we live in now, and the fact no, that yeah. you know you're you're looking for the very people in the park to evangelize for you. <laughs> we will see tens of thousands of photos of people standing in front of the, that gateway just in the first week. All right. They also announced a uh, for this area a Nintendo Superstar store, which you got you get. The other thing, though, that I thought was interesting was what wasn't announced. Uh, and here we got to thank our friend uh, BioReconstruct 
and our friend uh, Alicia Stella, who has the details on this. But there were apparently uh, three eateries and at least one water feature not mentioned in this. So that was uh, Moonship Chocolates and Celestial Sweets. That's also in this land. Uh, The Oak and Star Tavern with Savory Barbecue. Pizza Moon, which will serve up tasty menu featuring a variety of pizzas and more. And then the play area is called Astronomica, an interactive play area that also doubles as a giant compass rose for the many wonders of Epic Universe. And Bio has a really nice photo there yeah, of the. Uh, look at that image. You were mentioning Instagram uh, just a moment ago. And with this project, Universe will be breadcrumbing, you know, so many of these things. They'll be walking individual elements out in the weeks ahead. So I would imagine we'll be learning more about the Oak and Star Tavern and Astronomica, you know, fairly shortly. But again, there's there's those other four lands we got to get to yet. Plenty of time, plenty of time. We also got an official name for the the in-park hotel, which is the Universal Helios Grand Hotel. 500 rooms, uh, one-of-a-kind views, a dedicated entrance into the theme park, which we've only seen really with the Grand Californian at DCA, but uh, 500 rooms, it looks bigger than that, doesn't it? It does, it does. But uh, one of the other things that's worth noting, and again, this is borrowing a page from Disney's playbook, for example, the Storybook Castle at this, the heart of Shanghai Disneyland. This physical setup here that we're looking at at the Helios, this isn't just a hotel, and this is the, the stage, so to speak, of the nighttime extravaganza, you know, that, that you have a big, wide face of the hotel facing into the park that you can project images onto. Uh, not to mention, in fact, in the concept art we have here right in front of us now, you know, the, the, the fountains, the, 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 the central lagoon in this part of the park. Um, you know, from day one, this, this is part of the plan. You think that Universal will use the Helios Hotel as a projection mapping uh, canvas? Oh, God, yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I, I, again, the, you know, the big kiss goodnight to to lure you out to the, the center of the park before you walk through the portal back to your car. And, oh, by the way, the Super Nintendo store right there. Did you get your merch? <laughs> Remember, you know. <laughs> you know, the, on the one hand, I love the idea that it's a 500-room hotel because that's relatively small, which uh, means they can concentrate on things like service. On the other hand, uh, you know, my my first thought was how much a room's there going to cost. And my second thought was, if you have to ask, you can't afford it. So there we go. Ugh. Last interesting thing here. It looks like, Jim, that Universal has dropped the word summer from its opening summer 2025 marketings, which means it's now just opening 2025. But if I had to guess, just based on the photos that BioReconstruct is posting every day, I'd say that it's earlier, not later, 2025. Well, you know, have you been hearing about how, now I know one of them is called the Stella Nova, but the two moderates uh, that are sort of at the periphery, been hearing talk that those might actually come online and be available to guests out ahead of the park opening. And, and again, you're probably hearing the same things. They're talking January, February at the latest March of next year. Yeah, that's what I'm uh, hearing as well, that those, uh, those hotels will be open before the park. Which will be good, though, because it'll give Universal a chance to test out their transportation features. There's anything that they can iron out before, you know, day one. Oh, absolutely. Go ahead and do it. Like, 100%, go do that. So, fantastic. All right, Jim, we have time for some listener questions. Let's do this. Chris writes in with this question. I'm planning on traveling to Disneyland for the Pride Night on June 20th. Do you happen to have any data on how quickly tickets sold out? 
last year for the event. This actually took a quite, a, quite a bit of research, which is why I'm mentioning it. So there were two dates in 2023, June 13th and 15th. It was a Tuesday and a Thursday. Tickets went on sale for Magic Key Holders. Remember, that's how Disneyland does its annual passes. On April 18th and to the general public on April 20th, the June 15th date, so the later date, sold out first on April 29th, so about 11 days after they went on sale. Uh, and then the June 13th date uh, was sold out at least a couple of weeks in advance. I can't find a specific date as to when it happened, but uh, contemporary coverage from like the Orange County Register uh, says for coverage of the June 13th event that it had been, uh, quote, sold out for weeks. So my guess is that if you're buying these, like when they go on sale um, in April, uh, you've got maybe a week or 10 days tops to get tickets once they go on sale. And then after that. Okay. The the one caveat here is that remember what happened between the two Oogie Boogie bashes. The first one out the door after the pandemic, I want to say they didn't go clean for two weeks, three weeks, and the second one went clean in, I want to say, two days. So I guess that's a polite way of saying that I, I believe lens research here, but, but you know, I at yeah, the same could be, time... Could be earlier too, yeah. yeah. Maybe move a little faster just to, you know, uh, especially if you're, you know, making special plans to travel out there for this event, Chris. That's true. That's a good point. So yeah, so Chris, if you're if actually making a special trip out there for it, uh, get them the day they go on sale. All right. On last week's show, we mentioned that Universal might close its Simpsons-based Springfield lands and its parks because Disney owns the Simpsons now. Our friend Ashley sent in some amazing construction photos from Universal Studios Hollywood, showing how much effort Universal is going to in California to expand its parks, essentially digging into the sides of cliffs to obtain more land for its current projects. So if you guys want to see those photos, they're on the show notes. Go ahead and take a look. But Jim, they're not uh, they're not sparing any expense here in uh, in Hollywood. No. Um, did, did we talk about the Fast and Furious coaster? I... Not on the show. I mean, we've talked about it offline, but. Okay. Okay. Because that, that, I guess what's, what's fascinating about that project is, look, the, everybody who's already done Cosmic Rewind at Epcot understands the concept of a storytelling coaster, you know, where the, the car moves and directs your attention as it zooms along the track. What's kind of an interesting bend on what Universal is doing uh, is that this coaster uh, will do the same thing. It will turn at, again, in fact, uh, what they refer to as scream moments on the attraction. But what's fascinating about when they're going to turn is that uh, they're turning the cars into the park. So the noise will go into the park rather than out into the surrounding neighborhoods. They would, you know, in fact, yeah, you know, an effort was made to be a good neighbor, which, uh, again, kind of fascinating. Oh, that's excellent. When when is that uh, coaster supposed to open? That, as I understand it, is 2025. And, you know, looking like it's going to be quite a year for the the, the stateside (laughs) Universal Parks next year. We're going to have to make sure that all of our uh, in-the-field recording equipment is working in tip-top shape by the end of the year. Our friend Matt writes in with two questions. He says, uh, on last week's show, you mentioned that when the Epcot Festival Center was canceled, it was the death sentence for Harmonious. But if the Festival Center had been built Way more people would have still seen the show from World Checkers Lagoon than from the Festival Center, so guest satisfaction scores were always going to be low. Would management have traded low satisfaction scores for revenue? And <laughs> Matt, I believe... 
Okay. Here we go. No, 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 please, please. Okay. Matt, I believe that every time Disney management is told that some plan for higher revenue will result in lower guest satisfaction, they quote American musician Liberace, who once responded to a critic by saying, what you said hurt me very much. I cried all the way to the bank. So yeah, they only care about revenue. Everything else is just talk. I will mention this, Matt, because you, you, uh, it's sort of tangential to what you said. It's worth noting that one of Epcot's sleeper hits from the 50th, which is the Spaceship Earth Lighting Package, is now paying actual monetary dividends to Disney. And uh, Jim, you saw this announcement today, right before we um, went, we started recording. But Disney's Fairy Tale Weddings just announced that you can use Spaceship Earth as a wedding venue. And of course, Jim, the photo that they're advertising with is Spaceship Earth at night with the lighting package on. Uh, you and I have talked about the history of this thing. You know, I mean, no money, no time, and it, it, and again, the smash hit of the fiftieth, and the, the gift that obviously keeps on giving. It's true. All right. Matt also points out the recent uh, Washington Post article from last week about the complicated nature of planning a trip to a Disney theme park. That's by Hannah Sampson. And we got a quick mention in the article. Thank you, Hannah. Matt asks you, Jim, if we're already on that bridge that's the bridge too far. (sighs) It's fascinating that you're asking this question on the show where we spent as much time at the top talking about Epic Universal because uh, or the Epic Universe Park. Because, face it, a lot of what Disney has going for it is nostalgia. You know, the effect of your parents took you there and you're looking to recreate that moment with your child when you go there. And the fact that it, even with the reservation system falling away, uh, you know, earlier this month, and it's important to point that out, it's gotten slightly less complicated. But I, I just worry that that's the narrative, that... You know, to the effect of, you know, and, and don't get me wrong, if smart people pick up a copy of Turing Plans, you know, the, 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 the guide and, you know, and do the necessary prep because, you know, you're spending a lot of money and you're traveling a great distance. But the notion that just up the street, you know, Universal's adding a, a third park that, that is doing this sort of crazy, ambitious stuff. You know, that's not a time when you want people talking about, oh, Disney is expensive or it's so hard to go there. You have to do all of this homework. You got to get up at six in the morning to get your fast passes set up. And it's just sort of like, Disney's got to do something to turn this around. I mean, they have to. They have to. I don't know if you had the chance to read the uh, the reader comments in that Washington Post article. But there was there was a one comment and it was like, you know, hey, I, you know, I read this, you know, and I'm actually in I read this as I'm, you know, getting getting up in the morning, drinking my coffee in Walt Disney World, getting ready for my, you know, to make my 7 a.m. junior reservations. And I've got my battery pack charging so that I, I can uh, make it through a whole day using my iPhone in the parks. And, you know, I want to let the kids sleep and I'll do the 7 a.m. reservations, you know, basically going through all the rigmarole. And, and one of the follow-up replies to that comment was was basically like, blink twice if they're holding you hostage. Like, why would anyone why, no, read, no. read what you said? And, yeah. and how does that sound appealing? Yeah, it was, it was great. The line in there about letting the kids sleep 
that's a good mom or dad that did that. Yeah. You know, and again, yeah, trying yeah, to 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 do that, have that magical family Disney family vacation. But at the same time, Universal Florida has been around since June of 1990. You know, we are 30, 40 years now, and with that in mind, there are families out there that are just as nostalgic now about you know going to Universal and excited to go experience Super Nintendo World. Disney's got to wake up. This is the time to do something. Right. I will say this. The planning aspects for Disney have a reputation. 80% of it is deserved, right? And I I maintain, and you and I have talked about this, that the park executives don't actually use the tools or the processes that they make us use. Otherwise, it would change. But the comments in the Washington Post were, a lot of them were along the lines of like, you know, why don't you go to London? Why don't you go to Paris? Why don't you go to, you know, whatever, see the world? And my response is, I've been to a lot of places around the world. And if you want to get the most out of it, you still have to prepare there as well. Like, I get that you know you think you can show up in London and just see everything, but try Paris in August and see what's see what's open, right? And if you don't know that it's that things are closed, you're going to be in for surprise. So every destination requires some planning. And the other thing I would say is this: you know, Disney's one of the few places where you can show up with kids and be absolutely guaranteed that they'll have a decent time without you having to plan every minute of every day and every minute of entertainment for them. Somebody else will entertain your kids. And that's not going to happen if you go to Paris or London or any other city, right? So if you want the same level of entertainment for your kids, someone's going to put in the same level of effort. That is a fair and valid point. But at the same time, I mean, when you compare, we can do better. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you, you compare traveling to to Disney in, in as recently as the, the 90s of the 2000s. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah, yeah. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim tells us how Disney wanted changes to Epcot's original Nintendo Spectacular, Le Carnaval de Lumière, which eventually got us to Illuminations. We'll be right back. So you heard right. Punxsutawney Phil did not see his shadow when he emerged from that tree stump up on Gobbler's Knob, which means an early spring this year, right? I mean, if you can't trust an oversized ground squirrel when it comes to your long-range weather predictions, who can you trust? Which is why I'm taking advantage of the good weather that's sure to be headed our way to hit the road. Mind you, I'm not entirely sure where I'm headed, uh, not yet anyway, which is why I better pack for all sorts of conditions, uh, which is why I'm going to go grab my bass. For those of you who don't know, bass was created by actress Shay Mitchell. Her goal was to come up with this line of sleek and affordable bags, luggage, and accessories that are deliberately designed to help you travel effortlessly while still looking fashionable. And man, are these things handsome. And sturdy, not to mention cavernous. I mean, when you've got a base, you've now got room for everything you need when you travel. And more to the point, base has thought of everything you could possibly want when it comes to a piece of luggage. We're talking 360-degree gliding wheels, a cushioned handle, even a built-in weight indicator. So now you'll always know exactly how much your bag actually weighs before you head out to the airport. So no more expensive surprises when you make it up at the ticket counter. And did I mention that base comes in multiple sizes and colors, or that this line of bags, luggage, and accessories has over 30,000 five-star reviews? Look, whether you're packing for a quick trip or just looking to breeze through the security line at the airport, base has your personal items covered. 
And right now, Base is offering our listeners 15% off your first purchase by visiting basetravel.com backslash Disney Dish. Again, go to basetravel.com backslash Disney Dish to get 15% off your first purchase. That's B-E-I-S travel.com slash Disney Dish. We thank them for sponsoring today's show. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Hey, my mom turns 92 this week, so hats off to a woman who's been in my corner for more than six decades now. Though, if I'm being completely honest here, I'm betting that my antics, back when I was younger, were the cause of a lot of her gray hair. Yeah, I was a problem child, well into my 30s, and my self-destructive tendencies, well, they didn't just stymie my career and personal relationships, they also hurt my friends and family. A lot. But eventually, I got that crud under control, and that happened because I finally sought out therapy. And if that's something you're now hankering to have, uh, some sense of control over what's happening in your life these days, well, maybe it's time for you to explore the idea of therapy as well. And if that's where you now find yourself, well, allow me to introduce you to BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the world's largest therapy service, and it's entirely online not to mention designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. If you're looking to get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire, and you'll then get matched with a licensed therapist. And if you two don't click for some reason, well, you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Look, you deserve to be happy, right? So become your own soulmate, whether you're looking for one or not. Visit BetterHelp.com slash DisneyDish today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash Disney Dish. We thank them for sponsoring today's show. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And we're back. All right, Jim, on the last show, we ended with Disney just launching Le Carnival de Lumiere in 1982. And they realized that there were some issues. Number one being that they needed more people to see the show around World Chickas Lagoon. Yeah, they had used the model of the electrical water pageant. People would stand on the beach at the Poly or out behind uh, the Contemporary, uh, likewise along the shore at uh, Fort Wilderness. And this lovely show, you know, spread out along the water and you get, okay, let's do the same thing uh, at Epcot. But again, that's one thing when you have 5,000 guests there for your opening night party. It's quite another thing when you have 30,000 people crammed into the space at, along Showcase Plaza between Mexico and, and Canada. And so guest relations was dealing with dozens upon dozens complaints nightly, and which is why Mouse House managers turned to Walt Disney World's entertainment team and said, you need to fix this yesterday. So... Picking up where we left off, this decision to fix the show is made in late winter, early spring of 1983. And so Epcot has been open for six months at this point, but but this is also in that window of time, Lynn, when the initial attendance figures are coming in 
And also what guests are spending within the park. And it's like, oof, we are not making our numbers. And so word comes down from on high to tap the brakes, that at least when it comes to any discretionary future spending at Epcot. So, uh, so again, how's that for a challenging message? It's like, you need to- Do more to with less. You know, that's it exactly. You know, just sort of like, you know, you, you need to fix this yesterday. And by the way, we aren't going to give you sufficient funds to make significant changes to the show. So you go figure that out. And so what the entertainment team does is they, they come back and say, look, one of the reasons we're not meeting Epcot's financials is because, you know, fully two-thirds of our sit-down restaurants around World Showcase aren't doing the nightly business they should because everybody is like, oh, I need to hustle over to Showcase Plaza and pick up my place to stand to watch. For three uh, hours. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And so it's one of these things where it's like, look, I know what you're, you're telling us. But we, if we're going to do this, if we're going to reimagine the show as something that could play to most of the standing area around World Showcase Lagoon, you got to give us something. So, so let me uh, let me just throw in a, a quick personal anecdote here, and we'll use my personal anecdote as the first data point in this. So, the first ever Epcot restaurant I ate at was the San Angelin in Mexico in 1984, and it was packed at the time. So. Were some restaurants doing good and not others? That's what's fascinating. Both the Mexico and Canada, and as well as the individual little uh, quick service and you know walk up places that were on the periphery around Showcase Plaza, they were doing gangbuster. It was uh, the okay. the other restaurants where you could literally watch starting at five or six o'clock in the afternoon, for lack of a better term, attendance would start to fall off because it's like, yes, we'd love to eat here, but we need to be on the other side of the lagoon to watch this show. So anyway, management sees the, you know, uh, all right, we, we get what you're saying. All right, here is money for four more barges, which then allowed them to the revised version of the show to stretch it around uh, most of World Showcase Plaza. But at the same time, no money to update the music. So that's the thing. It is essentially the same show, Len, only with four more barges and being presented in a couple of different directions. So what do you do in a situation like that? You, you rebrand. Okay, so Carnival de, de Lumiere you know, goes away in June of 1983 and comes back as a new world fantasy. And so let's break down that name, Len. New, mm -hmm. as in new. this isn't... <laughs> non-carnival the Lumiere. I mean, yes, a lot of the music is the same, likewise the floats and, and most of the pyro and the fountain effects. But beyond that, you know, Epcot Center's nighttime show is completely new. The spirit, Jim, the spirit. There we is, go. Is, <laughs> the soul. Yeah. And other things that you can't quantify and or measure. There we go. You know, it, 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 but again, next word, world. It's like, yes, you're vacationing Walt Disney. What do you love this place, right? Uh, please be patient with us while we suss out an affordable way to fix Epcot Center's nighttime show. And then finally, fantasy. It's like. You, you've been over to our, our other theme park, right? The Magic Kingdom? And what's the most popular land over there? Fantasyland? Good that you know that, because none of those characters you met there will be in the show tonight. <laughs> Len, for my way of thinking, this is the equivalent of picking up a day-old bran muffin and saying aloud, this is now a fresh-glazed donut. And, you know, and it's like... <laughs> And then, you know, and then handing it to the customer, it's like, if you believe it, it's true. 
Anyway, Jim Schul, our partner on Disney Unpacked, has often talked about no-dough projects, as in, you know, you're working on an addition for the parks where you, you've run through your money, and so, but you still need to prop it. You still need to, to you know, get it finished. And this is when you begin to scavenge backstage. You, you, you find what's lying around behind the scenes, and then you use, what, those materials to prop your cue or, you know, to add a colorful item to a scene in the attraction. Yeah, I think the, uh, the phrase that uh, Shul uses is, there's nothing more dangerous than an Imagineer with a crowbar. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay. So now, in the case of a new world fantasy, there was a member of the Walt Disney World Entertainment team who said, hey, wait a minute. What happened to all those searchlights that we used for Epcot's grand opening? Did we buy those things or did we rent them? And... As it turned out, Len, they bought them. Oh. Evidently, it was, it was cheaper than renting them long-term. So these searchlights were now gathering dust in a warehouse on Walt Disney World property waiting for the grand opening of something. So the Disney World Entertainment staffer uh, has these searchlights hauled out of storage, cleaned up, and then he has them placed on several rooftops around World Showcase that... With the idea that at several points in a new world fantasy, these searchlights would briefly kick on, rake the sky, and then direct people's attention away from World Showcase Lagoon. Now, the Carnival de Lumiere ran for only eight months in 82 and 83, whereas New World Fantasy, because it was a slightly improved version of Epcot's nighttime show, it ran slightly longer than Carnival de Lumiere. We're talking a full year, June of 83 through June of 84. But over that year, Walt Disney World Entertainment is aggressively surveying guests at the exit Epcot Center, trying to get their impressions about New World Fantasy. And where this gets interesting, Len, is... The most popular element in this nighttime show isn't the pyro, isn't the fountains that shoot 90 feet in the air, but rather it's that moment in the show where these pulled out of storage and dusted off searchlights kick on. People, the paying customers love these moments where they are surrounded, you know, by the show, where they have to turn their heads to take it all in. Oh, perimeter lighting. Interesting. It's, it's interesting to use that phrase because one of the most popular elements of the fireworks or, or the holiday edition of Fantasy in the Sky over at the Magic Kingdom, uh, the, the version they do in July, in July for the 4th of July or around Christmas for the holidays is are those perimeter fireworks. I mean, people just rave about them. So, yeah, I mean, there's something about being surrounded by an effect instead of looking directly at it. I mean, one is you're on television. The other one is you're, you know, you're basically watching TV. The other one is, you know, you're, you're in it. You're experiencing That's it. it. Uh, you've nailed it. And, and that was the breakthrough moment, at least as far as, you know, the people who are now working on Epcot's nighttime show and are trying to turn it around. The way to fix Le Carnival de Lumiere, uh, a, a new world fantasy, is to turn it into a show that surrounds the guest, one that, that where people would be forced to constantly be turning around to take in the full scope of the show. What year are we right now? Well, we are spring of 84. Okay, and Eisner comes in in like late fall of 84 October right? you know but but it, it's interesting you bring up this time because this particular moment is when Ivan Boski and Saul Steinberg right. yeah. are making their run at Disney and Disney is suddenly very very concerned about 
what Wall Street thinks, especially on the heels of, you know, remember, one of the ways they were trying to frighten away the green mailers is that they actually figured, all right, we need to take on a, 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 a huge amount of debt. You know, we need to be much less attractive to the green mailers. So this is when they went, acquired Gibson Greeting for three, $325 million, which Len, uh, using the inflation calculator, that's $961 million, almost a billion in today's dollars. Bizarre. The Disney owned the Gibson Greeting Card Company is just, and they did it for green mail, just tells me that financial incentives in this country are sometimes completely off. Totally, totally. (laughs) So that had happened as this is going on. And so this explained when, you know, said, look, we, you know, we have an idea, you know, we we have an idea how to fix uh, a carnival, you know, the, the, the new world fantasy. And Disney was like, look, I'm sorry. Wall Street is paying very close attention to us now. And remember what got us in trouble in the first place here is the stock price, the company stock price dipped. Because Epcot didn't make its, you know, both its financial uh, projections and its attendance figures. And so it's like, we can't be seen giving you a giant pile of dough. That makes sense. Because I was going to ask why, you know, if if Disney needed to load up on debt, why spend $325 million on greeting cards when they could spend $325 million on rides? But if you're saying that that Wall Street would look at those two things differently, then I understand. Well, in effect, what's so interesting about when Disney buys Gibson is the company is pushes as one of the, you know, this is a smart decision by us because we can now put our characters instead of, you know, uh, licensing our characters to Gibson. We now will put Disney characters on cards and we'll own that money outright. And it would, I mean, it was... It was an interesting, you know, logic, you know, uh, remember at the, at the same time, a couple of months after this, we'd see Disney buy Arvita, you know, the, with the notion of, yeah, we're getting the timeshares. Anyway, so with the entertainment team understanding, okay, so you're only going to give us a little amount of money and then next year you'll give us more money. And so the notion is we can over a couple of years turn this into the show that we want. So this brings us to Laser Phonic Fantasy, which, you know, again, Len, that name kind of gives away what the main gimmick of this show is. What's interesting is the way they describe this, this rhapsody of light and sound. But what they were going to do is they were going to use... Uh, I, I want to get the term right here, biophonic lasers, but the notion- It's all marketing will, at this point. <laughs> no, 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 that's it exactly. But they set up laser stations on top of the Mexico Pavilion, the Canada Pavilion, and also in the topmost cupola of the American Adventure building. And these three points, you know, they then fired out over the water. And the other- aspect of the show that's kind of fascinating is to have things that could catch the laser light. This is the first time that Disney uses water screens, which uh, anybody who's ever seen Fantasmic knows that this is something that, you know, Disney would lean into very heavily, you know, starting in 1992. But this is 1988, Len, and it's a different take on it. Instead of you know, when you watch Fantasmic, the water screens come up from below, and you have that that, right. that fan shape. Yeah, this is the question I was going to ask. Where are these Where are these fountains? Well, uh, this is the thing. Poles would come up out of 
the uh, those barges we talked about on the last show, the the you know the pyro on one side and and fountains on the other, and when they got to about thirty or forty feet in the air, they would then begin to spray water out from above, and as it oh. as the pellets went down to the ground, it would form a screen that you you could project a laser onto. Huh. Again, kind of intriguing that this is the way they went with Epcot. And when uh, Barnett Ricci and the team who were working on Fantasmic for Disneyland, you know, came out and eyeballed that and went, no, we need something different for California. What an interesting idea for, uh, for, for water screens. All right. So they do this. They've got two years to make adjustments. What happens? Well, but that's the thing. It is it, it, because they keep getting little bits of money. It's what made this fascinating is every time you went back to see laser phonic fantasy over the four-year run of this thing, it changed. Sometimes there'd be a new barge, you know, or sometimes they'd creep up the number of shells in the show. In fact, over the course of the four-year run of the show, it went from 600 firework shells to 800 firework shows. But again, the stuff that people kept responding to was the very analogy that you made, Len. You know, that, that as opposed to watching television to being in the middle of the show and the stuff that happened around them was the stuff they, they evangelized about. So again, if we jump to late 1986, this is just as Walt Disney World's 50th anniversary is getting underway. Uh, entertainment starts to develop a brand new nighttime show for World Showcase Lagoon. One that, again, one that would surround guests on a scale that had never, ever been attempted before at a Disney theme park. And which wow. brings us to the original Luminations, uh, which debuts at Epcot Center on January 30th, 1988. And we will discuss that show on next week's Disney Dish on the third and final installment of this series. Wow. Okay. So uh, Illuminations is my favorite. So Illuminations ran for the better part of 20 years. But you mentioned that uh, in 86 is when they started developing the concept. But does that mean that Laser Phonic Fantasy ran for four years? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, just to clarify here that it started in June of, of 84 wrapped up in early 88 with then illuminations bowing on on the 30th of january of that year okay so here's why i mentioned it because the answer to the trivia question what is the second longest running nighttime show in epcot the answer being laser phonic fantasy is so obscure that it's got to be a trivia question somewhere Gotta be, gotta, be. gotta be, hundred percent. Oh my god! All right, <laughs> yeah. but, but uh, oh, uh, to to kind of bring this full circle though, because you mentioned at uh, you know in the new segment of the show how Spaceship Earth with its lighting package is now mm -hmm. a wedding venue, wedding destination. Yeah, but here's the thing: the, the, the if you ask a lot of people about what they remember most about laser phonic fantasy. It wasn't the show itself. It's what happened afterwards. And that, you know, as they were leaving the park, you know, that, that you finish watching the show at World Showcase Lagoon and you, you start to walk toward, you know, your car, which is behind Spaceship Earth, the laser that's set up in the cupola of the uh, American Adventure would now begin shooting straight at Spaceship Earth. And they would do... Do you remember how... 
you would have the rotating globe. You'd see the the Americas oh, go by and Europe yeah, and Asia. Yeah, the effect. Yeah, and I thought it was the most amazing thing ever. Honestly, God, I love the lasers on Spaceship Earth. I thought it was. Well, no, no, no. I, it, it looked like the future to me in 1980. Well, no, that's it exactly. And just the, the notion lie. of so much of... You know the the fact that here we are, deja vu all over again. You know that. Yeah. You know that, that. You know what's the thing that excited people coming out of the fiftieth? It's the lighting package. You know, <laughs> it there. <affects> spaceship Earth. <laughs> you know, or for that matter, you know, we are talking about Saul Steinberg and I, 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 Ivan Bosky, and it's a, and think about it. You know, this is in the same window of time right now. Uh, Nelson Peltz, yeah. yeah, is 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 coming. You know, just. A, you know, Len, we've been doing this long enough that, that you know time is folding in on itself. There's a uh, there's a story there that we can't tell for years, but we'll tell it eventually. Yeah, All right, this is, true. <laughs> this is true. Okay, Time. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the show today. You can help support our show by subscribing over at Patreon.com/slash/JimHoMedia, where we're posting exclusive shows every week. Last week's video is a bonus content on Space Mountain with Jim Scholl. and Jim Hill. You've got a new podcast out. At, uh, look forward to Epic Universe, right? We do, we do. In fact, uh, the nice folks at Universal just reached out today. It's like, oh, we got to get an interview going. So, yeah, fantastic, so. fantastic. All right, folks. On next week's show, we're going to continue the story of illuminations, and also we talk about how a new land use study of the area around the Magic Kingdom gives more credence to the idea that the Magic Kingdom is going to get a major expansion. You can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me, Len, at touringplans.com. We're produced spectacularly by Eric Hersey, who'll be joining Grammy Award-winning artist Omuro Sangare on stage to sing Sabu and Nguatu, plus other tracks you hear in the background at Disney's Animal Kingdom Lodge, at the Afro Roots Festival on Saturday, March 30th, 2024, at the Miami Beach Bandshell that's on Collins Avenue in beautiful downtown Miami Beach, Florida. While Eric's doing that, please go onto iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.